Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. This morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Nehemiah, and I'm going to tell you uh, what God's plan is for your life. Each one of you, individually, I'm going to tell you what God's plan is for your life. No, I'm not going to do that because I can't do that. But I do want to engage that because Nehemiah, as an individual, has in this book a life-altering, probably, probably nothing in his life was more life-altering than the scene that we are going to look at today. God changes everything for him. He is on a path in his life, and God has him make a hard left turn. And so it does bring up the question, how do I know what God wants for me? How do I know if God doesn't want something like that for me? How do, I, how do I know what God's plan is for my life? How do I know what his plan is today? How do I know what his plan is next week, next month, next year? Uh, what am I supposed to be when I, when I grow up? Does God want me to make a hard left turn in my life, and how do I discern that? And there are going to there's a lot of things about God's will for our life that are crystal clear because God has given us the Bible, and so he's made some things crystal clear, and that's really helpful, and I think sometimes we lose perspective on that, and then within that, I think there's a lot of freedom in a lot of ways to discern how God might be calling us to specific things in that. A lot of it's situational. Where you are in life dictates what God expects of you, and a lot of it has to do with what's going on around you. So say a global pandemic happens, that might change what God wants from you uh, in your life in this season. And how you, how you understand that affects, this is true of every relationship, how you, uh, how you understand what someone expects of you and it, how you're meeting those expectations, like, has a lot to do with the tenor of the relationship that you have with that person. And that's true with the Lord. Do we know what he expects of him? Is God happy with me? I mean, that's a question that's worth asking. And it's, um, it's not the easiest thing to discern. It's kind of like, you know, a job. The clearer the expectations are and the better feedback you have, the, the better you understand where you, where you stand and the easier it is to be satisfied uh, with that. And like a job, there are times when expectations are crystal clear. There's something that everybody's gearing up for together in a big project. Everybody's all in, and then it gets done, and you celebrate because it's clear that it got finished. And so you've known what expectations are and that you met them. But then there's other times, and, and you don't want it to be like that all the time. You don't want to be micromanaged every day of your life where you want, you want some freedom uh, to choose the direction and to choose how you accomplish the things that you've been given. And I think it's true like that with the Lord, and that's what we're going to see. So let me jump back into the Nehemiah story, and I'll start in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. So this series... Uh, we've titled Nehemiah, Respond, Rebuild, Renew. And so he's responding to a crisis. He's rebuilding a city, and God is renewing a people. The Israelites have been uh, in exile from their homeland. They've been 1,000 miles from their homeland, and they've been away for 150 years now. Some of them have gone back to Jerusalem and have, have tried to make a life there, and it's been hard. And, and Nehemiah's brother comes back and tells them that the, the city's uh, broken down and the, the walls and the gates are broken down and so they're experiencing 
a physical crisis, they're uh, experiencing an identity crisis as a people, and they're experiencing shame. And Nehemiah's really engaged that problem. He's thought deeply about it. He's thought, I got to do something about this. He has prayed and fasted for four months and asked God, what do you want me to do to respond to this situation? And this is what he's come up with. So he goes to the king uh, with his plan. Now, the king, Artaxerxes, is a big deal. He's the king of Persia for 40 years, and, um, and so he's an historical figure and in like a, I mean, just a, a big historical uh, figure. If you ever saw the movie 300, the guy that shows up, the crazy looking guy at the end is Xerxes, and that's Artaxerxes' dad. Now, that's obviously not exactly what it was like, but you might be scared if you're presenting something to a king like this and you're not sure how it's going to go. And so Nehemiah gets scared in this situation. Now, the, the passage continues. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Always a good thing to say to a king. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what do you want? What, what are you asking? And that comes across maybe a little bit harsh, but he's a king. That's how kings respond. Kings have people asking them for stuff all the time. And for, if you're a king, the sooner you can check something off the list, the better. And so he's like, let's get to it. Let's get down to brass tacks. Just make it quick. And so Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. And you're going to find this is a pattern for Nehemiah. He has spent four months seeking the Lord and he has received word from the Lord. And so he knows what the plan is. And now, from now on, you're going to see him at various times say, I, I said a prayer, but then I got on with it because God had told me um, what to do. So I prayed to God and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. This is, if you've ever heard of an elevator speech, this is the ultimate elevator speech. They say, if you got, you got an idea, maybe you want to pitch to your boss or your boss's boss, you need to have it you need to have it whittled down so that if you get in an elevator with them and they're trapped and you got them for like 20 seconds that you can make your pitch to them. And that's what Nehemiah does here. Send me to Judah and let me rebuild the city. That's the plan. That's a big, bold, easy to understand plan. Now, if this were a movie, there would be a, like a pregnant pause here. There'd be some dramatic music. There'd be expressions and there'd be tension. What's the king going to say? And the king said to me with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? And if you're Nehemiah, you're thinking, I think he's going for this. I think this is going pretty well. And he says, so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the forest for the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And so Nehemiah's got more than just the basic plan. He's got the plan. And if the king said yes to the big plan, let's see how far this goes. And he pushes him. And he needs letters to travel from, um, from Susa to Jerusalem because that's, that's not a safe passage. And so he gets letters so that people let him pass through. And then he asks the, he asks the king uh, if he'll give him the stuff to rebuild the city, which is a it's a big, bold ask, but um, like they just don't have much to do this. As my old boss used to say, that Nehemiah didn't have a pot to pee in. Like he didn't have anything to rebuild the city. And so he asked the king for help because, um, what do they say? You strike out 100% of the times you don't swing or however that goes. Like uh, if, if you don't ask, you're not going to get. And so he asked. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand 
of my God was upon me. The king gave me everything I asked for because God's hand was on me. And so I'm going to make three observations about this plan, and then I'm going to relate that to God's plan for our lives. And the first observation I'm going to make is this. That plan is a risky plan. That is a risky plan. Rarely will God call you to a plan that looks easy and safe. If you have been following Jesus for a while, this might, you know, this might be the only thing you need to hear today, that if your life is really easy and safe, you might not be where God wants you to be, because rarely does he call us to things that are easy and safe. Uh, Nehemiah risks his life with this plan. He is the cupbearer. I talked about that a little bit the first week. Being a cupbearer is a big deal. And kings don't like drama with their cupbearers because their job is to eat the food the king's going to eat and like not die so that the king knows whether or not it's safe for him to eat. Uh, So you end up keeping the king company like You want to be good company for the king. The king wants to have fun. These are in his relaxed moments and to stay alive so the king can stay alive. If the cupbearer starts acting funny, the king's first thought is, I think somebody got to the cupbearer and that's no good because it's time for a new cupbearer. And so he's really like your job is to be stable emotionally. And when you're not, that's a problem. And that's what he does. So it's what he's doing is is risky. Uh, He risks his position. The king is already when you read the, the book before Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, the king has already halted construction in Jerusalem once. And so there are people that are back there and they started rebuilding things and then the, uh, the enemies of Israel around them sent word back to the king of Persia saying, you don't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt because if you look back in history, it's a rebellious city and the king agreed with him and he shut it down. So now Nehemiah is going to him and asking him to re- reverse a political decision that he had previously made. And so he's crossing a line. I'm guessing Nehemiah doesn't have a whole lot of geopolitical conversations with the king, but here he's going to have one. And yet he keeps it personal. He says, it's the city of my father's graves. Like he's, he's cashing in chips. He's leaning on his personal relationship uh, with the king. The queen is there, which implies that it's not done in formal court because she probably wouldn't be there, but in their residence. So if you think about the White House, how there's the West Wing where there's business that gets done and there's the residence. This is probably back in the residence. They're kicking back, having a meal, and Nehemiah makes this uh, big ask to them. Um, And so he's risking his position by doing that. He risks rejection. There's a real likelihood the king is going to say, Listen, man, you drink wine, you don't build cities. What are, you, what are you talking about? No, you can't do that, and I'm not giving up my cupbearer. And, and he risks his personal comfort and safety because if, if the king does say yes, like, like I said earlier, this has this got to be the biggest thing that happens in Nehemiah's life in terms of a change. He has a great existence. He is, he is in the seat of power. This is one of the most powerful men in the world, and he likes Nehemiah. He's got job security with this as, as long as no one's trying to kill the king with his food and drink. Um, and he's going to end up leaving, and the first record we have of him coming back is 12 years later. 12 years is a long time. That's a chunk of his life. And so he's risking his personal comfort and his safety. You put yourself in his shoes. Like, if you had to give, give this, this plan odds, you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, what are the odds that this is going to make it? Is the king going to let me do it? Is he going to give me the stuff to do it? Because I don't know where else I'm going to get the stuff to rebuild the city. Am I capable of leading people to rebuild the city? Are the people that I would need to lead going to follow me? Because they don't know me from Adam. They don't know anything about me. Are we capable of accomplishing it? And can we overcome the opposition that's sure to arise from the people around us to rebuild the city? Honestly, that's like probably a 10% chance of this thing working, 5% maybe. 
Uh, when's the last time? When's the last time you tried something big, risky that cost you something for the Lord that you thought this has got about a ten percent chance that this works, but let's go ahead and roll the dice. If God called you to something like that today, would you take him up on that? Would you take him up on that? Most of us are not risky people unless we have to be risky people. And I think that's, a, that's probably a bigger problem for, for our church here than for other churches in other parts of the world. Um, but it's a problem for our church. God calls his people to take risk for the sake of the kingdom all the time. Uh, so the plan is risky. The plan is risky. Here's the second observation I have about it. The plan is clear. The plan is so clear, it makes you wonder how it took four months to come up with a plan. Like four months of meeting with the Lord to come out and say, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city, which is what's great about the plan. It's, it's clear vision of what he wants to, to have happen. In hindsight, I think clear plans look like that and work like that. Clear plans don't come easy. Uh, clear clear plans usually take a good bit of time to, to come up with and they don't come out of nowhere and they come out of tension and angst and they come out of a lot of other plans that got put up on the board and then taken off of the board and probably a lot of like we're never going to come up with a plan and then boom there's a plan. I was thinking back on, on some of the left turns that God has had me take in my life and those plans and they came out of that type of angst when I moved down here uh, I was with a job, but had a sense that God wanted me to be doing something different. And there was a path there, but I didn't love the path there. And, um, but I didn't know what the path is with God and had checked out different churches and ended up at a church I didn't expect and doing ministry that I didn't expect. And then I'm having lunch with my pastor and his wife one day, and she says, you should quit your job and become our youth pastor. And, and the, my, my pastor is like, well, he's one of those computer guys. He's got a career. He's not going to do that. And I'm like, you should quit your job and become our youth pastor. I should quit my job and become the youth pastor. And I didn't really say much, but that was, that was clear from that moment. That was the plan. And it took probably nine months before that happened. But out of tension and angst and that took months or years, clear plan. Uh, I can go back to when God had us plant this church and tension and angst, angst and then in a few different conversations, plant a church. Like it came about moving downtown when we tried to adopt another kid like out of all those things, clear plans come. Clear plans are going to cost you something. You know, we're going to do this means we're not going to do this, and we're not going to do this, and we're not going to do this. And that's what a clear plan looks like. And so he goes to the king, and he's clear, like, there's a problem, and this is how I'm proposing fixing the problem. But it means, like, I can't do these things, one of which is being the cupbearer to the king anymore. Uh, and I think the king probably really appreciated his clarity. Nehemiah probably heard people pitch stuff to the king before and, and realized what worked and what didn't and that clarity works and the king is clear back and it cost the king something. It cost him his cupbearer, which is really his security if you have trust in the cupbearer. Uh, and then Nehemiah reveals that there's more to that plan, that he's thought it through more than that, that he's got like, here's what I want to have happen, but here's step by step how that's going to happen. And he asked the king uh, to participate in the rest of the plan. So the plan is risky, the plan is clear, and the plan is God's. Um, the good hand of the Lord was upon him. In a few verses, which is a, a good period of time, when he gets back to Jerusalem, uh, Nehemiah says this. He says, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So when he first gets there, he doesn't tell anybody, but what God had put in his heart to do for Jerusalem. It's clear 
that God put something in his heart, this plan in his heart for Jerusalem. Now, I, I think it's interesting in this story that he doesn't tell us how that happened. And it, it's interesting because a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, he tells us how that happened. You know, Gideon had an angel of the Lord come visit him at one part of God communicating the plan to him. And at another part, he has a dream and God communicates through uh, a dream. There's a part in the, the book of Daniel, which happens in Persia, where there's the handwriting on the wall. And that's how God communicates what's going to happen. Then another part in Genesis where God wrestles with Jacob, you know, and that's part of his communicating his plan. And here he leaves it pretty vague. He prays and fasts for four months, but Nehemiah comes out of that time and he's confident that this is how the Lord wants him to move. And I think that's good because it leaves some leeway for us in how we hear from the Lord about specifically what we want to do. Or maybe that if we're on track with the Lord, we've got some freedom in how we want to solve a problem according to other things that we know about God. So the plan is God's. Now, let me roll back through that. The plan is risky. The plan is clear. The plan is God's. But I'm going to roll through it the opposite way. The plan is God's. The plan is clear. And the plan is risky. And talk about how God uh, communicates plans in our lives. And so I'm going to start with the plan is God's. And I'm going to flip to a passage in the New Testament um, and just lay out some things about God's plan for your life that are crystal clear. So this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For, for our sake, he made him who knew to be sin, who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So there are some things about God's plan for your life that are crystal clear from that passage. And this is step one of it. Be reconciled to God. Apart from Christ, you are alienated from God. In Christ, you are reconciled to God. And he wants you to be reconciled to God. And that's why he sent Christ. If you are tuning in to our, our live stream, you know, and, and you've just been doing that since, you know, we got started and you're new to all this and, um, or you've been, some of you have been coming to Oak City Church for a few years, but you're, you're probably not here yet. Um, something we've observed over time is that we have a lot of people that come to Oak City Church that have some church background and maybe moved or they changed phases of life, just wanted to change churches or whatever it is, but we have a lot of people that come to Oak City Church, they're kind of on what I would call an on-ramp to Jesus, and they've either had some, some churching that was way back in their life or really have never had it, and so they're just getting their feet wet with all that, and that's great. Like, we're happy that that's the case, but be clear that this is God's plan for your life, that he wants you to be reconciled to him through Jesus. That is the narrative of the Bible from beginning to end, that there is a way that things are supposed to be, and this world that we're living in is not it. This is not the way that things are supposed to be. And there's a way that you and I are supposed to be. And this is, this is, I am not it. And you are not it. And that's clear if you spend five minutes looking in the mirror and thinking through the things you, you think and you say and you do, or just ask the people closest to you and they'll be clear that you are not the person that you're supposed to be. And the world is not the, the world that it's supposed to be. Um, but don't take that, don't, don't even take that for granted. The fact that we have such a strong sense of justice and we see it all around us right now, right? 
in, in particular ways. The, f- the fact that we have such a strong sense that there's a way things are supposed to be and this isn't it and we need to drive towards that is such evidence that God is real. Because if this is a naturalistic world and we're a, a random collection of atoms that stick together in different ways, then justice is not a real thing. <laughs> if it does not exist somewhere and it exists somewhere in the person of Christ and the person of God is where justice exists and that's how we know it because we're made in his image. Um, that's, that's really, really significant, and that's how you know it. And so there's a way things are supposed to be, and this, this isn't it. And that this isn't it starts, uh, it started with us believing we would be a better God than God. Instead of trusting him uh, to show us how to live our life, we decided that we could figure out better uh, how to live our life. And we still live like this every day, like we're smarter than him, um, we're, we're better than him, uh, that we can figure this out. I, I uh, found this quote a few months ago that is stuck with me. It says, the lie beneath every sin is, if you obey God, you'll miss out. If you obey God, he'll crush you. If you obey God, he doesn't love you like you love yourself. He's not as concerned for your goodness and your well-being as you are. Therefore, sometimes you have to disobey. That's the lie beneath every sin. You are impugning the goodness of God. And that leads us to a place where we're seeking our own kingdom instead of seeking his kingdom when we trust ourselves more than we trust him. And that has consequences because we're not as smart and not as good as he is. And the consequences of our sin are the way that the reason that we're not the way that we're supposed to be and that the world around us isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And so Christ comes to reconcile us to him. He who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin because he was fully God and fully man. So he lives the life by the power of the Spirit, that, that we were created to live and that's possible through the power of the Spirit. And we're compelled by that because we know it's true and we know it's right. He knew no sin and he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, that he takes our sin on him when he goes on to the cross and he didn't deserve that, but we did. And he gives us his righteousness. And so we get his righteousness, he takes our sin. That's the whole story of the Bible. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system is that. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. We know that now, that our actions have consequences. We, it's the first thing we teach our kids. We know that all this stuff is so deeply tr- it, like, embedded in the Bible, and it's so true, and we know it. We know it. Um, and so he atones for our sin with what he does for us on the cross, um, which is you know, hard to grasp or miraculous, but, but true. Um, and so, and then we get the righteousness of Christ and he begins to change us. And in an instant, we get the righteousness of Christ, but then he begins to change us to become more like him. And that's what we need is change. Because if, if something doesn't change, this place doesn't magically turn from hellish into heaven. It doesn't, unless someone stronger than us and better than us changes it. And that's God. So, that's step one, is be reconciled to God through Christ. Just clarity of his plan for your life. Um, here's the second thing you see in that. Become more like Jesus, that we might become the righteousness of God. So let me throw a few verses in there. First Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. And that's the big church word for becoming more like Jesus. Uh, this is God's will for your life, that you would be sanctified. The book of Romans talks about this in a handful of different places. In Romans 8, uh, set your mind on the things of the Spirit and not on the things of the flesh, and then you'll, you'll have life and not death. Like, you'll be, you'll be moving towards life and not towards death. In Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. You'll know his will because you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that's his will for you, his transformation. Uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, You abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we, ab- we abide in Christ, and through that relationship, we, we bear the fruit of the Spirit, and we become more like Christ. Uh, he changes us. And so that, that happens, like that abiding happens through prayer, and it happens through knowing his word better, and it happens through gathering together with the, the community that is the church and corporate worship and serving your church and loving your neighbor and giving, and all those things are abiding. And in that, he reveals um, to us what needs to change, and he calls us to repent, and, and by the power of the Spirit, we change. But that's a slow process. Fruit grows slowly. Um, it's a dirty process. It's a muddy process, and that's his will for your life. Be clear about that. Uh, his will is that you become more like Jesus. Third thing in that passage, make disciples of those around you. So back to that passage from Corinthians, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave that ministry to us. We're ambassadors for Christ. We got a message that we got to deliver. God is making his appeal through us. Uh, and so that, like, that's our call, is to make disciples of the people around us and to make sure the people in, around us know who Christ is and what he's done and the love that he has for them. So make disciples. And then the, the last thing that is not explicitly in that passage, but we just did a whole series on it, is loving your neighbor. <laughs> so love God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, which I think are encompassed in those first three things, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we need to be carving out time and space and energy and, and making it a priority to love our neighbor and seeking the welfare of the city that we've been sent to. And we've got teams of people around here that are doing that through Pharaoh's Daughter and the Smithfield Rescue Mission and the Dream Center and Sunika and GHI and all these different things that we've made priorities. So the plan is God's. Like, that's God's plan. And if you ever wonder, is God, where, where am I with God? Is God pleased with me? Uh, go back to those, you go back to those basics. And we, we don't have to wonder about that because it's all over. It's in that passage. It's all over his word. Now, that question, is God pleased with me? You have to ask that in context of a father with his children, you know, um, my children are, are never like completely on track the way we would like for them to be on track, but we love them without reservation and, and deeply and madly, but it doesn't mean like we're totally pleased with every single thing that they do, you know? And so that's the picture that God gives us of relationship with them. But we can ask, like, are we in line with what God has told me is his plan for my life? God wants you to be reconciled to him. That's a decision that you make where you say to him, I, Jesus, I believe in who you are and I believe in what you've done for me and so I surrender my life to you. That's a, a decision that you make at some point along that path. You check it out, you know, for a period of time. You investigate, you listen, but you know he's calling you and you make that decision. And there's a moment of rescue in that. And you don't always know exactly when it happens. Sometimes you look back and say, yeah, I do believe in who he is and what he's done. And I have surrendered my life to him. But if you haven't done that and you know God's calling to you, then just shut the live stream off right now. Spend some time with the Lord and surrender your life to him and be reconciled to God through Christ because there's nothing else that I can say to you. Uh, and, And once you do that, let me know because you're an infant in Christ and you need help. 
and you need to get baptized because Jesus tells you to get baptized and we'll figure out a COVID way to get you baptized. But, but that's step one in his plan for you. Be reconciled uh, to God. God wants you to become more like Christ. And so you ask, am I, am I, is my character changing? Am I ru- routinely realizing like things about my life and character aren't the way that they're supposed to be, patterns of sin in my life, and am I repenting of them and changing? Do the people around me know the struggles that I have internally, or am I completely hiding from the people around me and not wanting them uh, to know? Am I changing? And this one's hard, and the longer you walk with Christ and the longer you're around the same group of people in a church, the harder this one can be. And we've worked hard over the years to make sure that you're known so that you can't hide in that. Um, but this actually gets harder over time. Uh, I was thinking about some things this week that I think God is trying to, to work out in my life and that it's come at great cost. Like there's a lot that has led to specific types of change and it doesn't seem worth it to me because it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But I felt like God was asking me like, how much would you pay for me to change your character? Like, what would you be willing to go through if that's what it took for me to change your character? And then I thought about heaven. And for heaven to be heaven, we all have to change a whole lot before we get there for heaven to work, you know? And what are we willing to, to pay to go through for that change to happen? Are we willing, do we, want, do we want it to be sanctified, to be more like Christ enough to go through that? Because you put, you put a thousand Jeffs together, that ain't heaven. You know what I mean? Like we can think that if, if everybody else would change, then, then everything would be great. No, it's you. Like, they're thinking that about you, too, because we all need to change. And so is that happening in your life, and are you willing to go through whatever it takes for God to change your character? God wants you to make disciples, and so our language as a church has been, you know, we're, we pray for the people around us. We, we live lives that demonstrate the gospel to the people around us. We get in conversations where we have a chance to talk about the impact that the gospel has on our lives, and then through that, we'll end up in places where we can spell out the basics of the gospel in a clear way and then invite people into the gospel. So gospel demonstration, conversation, explanation, and invitation. Have you engaged that with people in your life? You know, when, when, when's the last time? And for some of you, it's like Tuesday, you know? But for others, it's like, man, I haven't thought about that language for a long time. Am I doing that? Well, that's what God wants for your life, and it's crystal clear. And are, are we loving our neighbor? And again, we just went through a whole series on this. Is that a priority in your life? And are you caring for the people? Do you know what they need enough that you could be burdened so that you could be in this place where Nehemiah is um, to act on it? These are the basics, you know. Uh, we had football coach Vince Lombardi, when he came to Green Bay, he said, football is two things. It's blocking and it's tackling, and that's what we're going to do. These are the basics, and God spells it out clearly for us, what he wants. And so his plan is clear. And if you're engaged in those things, then you're probably 90% of the way covered with what God wants for you. But within, that, within those things, I think God gives us a lot of leeway, probably more leeway than we know about that. And, and within that plan, it, it's, it's probably hard to screw it up. You know, he probably lets us take a lot of chances and wants us to take risks for him uh, within that plan. You go back to Nehemiah and his response, his empathy, his prayer, and his fasting tells me, he was on track with the Lord because he saw that situation and felt the things that the Lord felt about that situation because he was abiding with the Lord. He was in touch with the Lord. Um, but then within that, he had some freedom in how he responded to that situation. And so that, it's clear, but then it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up being risky. It's going to end up being risky. And so I talked about Nehemiah making left turns. Salvation, 
when you're reconciled to God, that is a left turn in your life. And if it isn't, then you haven't understood it, you know, because that is surrendering your life to him and saying, I'm going to live my life for you and not for me. And I'm going to seek to build your kingdom and not my kingdom. And that's a left turn. That's going to change a lot of things in your life. And it's the right thing to do. And it's totally worth it. And you need to do it. Uh, But it's a left turn and it's risky. Sanctification becoming more like Christ is going to require some left turns. And if, if it's not, then you're probably not doing it right. You know, it's going to require restoration in some relationships. Um, you know, some on a one-time thing and some on an ongoing basis that's going to require some apologies and some humility and some things that we're not good at and we don't really like uh, that are risky, relationally risky. It may require some changes of environment because you realize, man, I can't, be who Christ wants me to be in this place or around these people. And so for a period of time, I need to change uh, my environment. And I know for a lot of us, when we first started walking with the Lord, that was true. And so that's risky, you know, and that's going to cost you something. Um, But that may be the way that it is. Loving your neighbor may require a left turn for Nehemiah. This situation was in front of me and it's, what do I do about it? I wonder what he thought the first time he thought, oh, God's telling me to, me to go, like give up my job and go to Jerusalem and lead these people. Are you kidding me, Lord? Like, I wonder if that's what he thought, because it's a, it's a crazy plan for him. But maybe he thought, you know what I can't do is nothing. I can't do nothing when these people over here are suffering like that. I have to do something. And if this is the only thing I can come up with, then this is the thing that I need to try and do, because there's so much burden, and he shared God's heart for those people. And you can't be burdened for everything, but you got to be burdened for something, and especially in the time um, that, that we're living in. He looked at his resources and thought, what do I have? Who else could have that conversation with the king? Who else could get permission from the king to rebuild the city? Who else could get the stuff from the king? God had placed him in a space. Uh, he had, in our language, a privilege, and he exercised that privilege with the king on behalf of these people in Jerusalem. What, Christ, what does that mean in light of the crises that we're facing today? What does it mean for you, you know? We're, we're in a space in our culture where we have a chance to take a step forward when it comes to race relations in our culture and understanding and, um, and equity and, and all of those things. Like, what, what relationships do you have where he wants you to take a step forward and help people around you take a step forward and to love your neighbor in the midst of this? And what does that look like? What does it look like as COVID drags on and on and on with like no end of disruption in sight, you know? (laughs) What does it look like for us to continue to try and discern? And and this is exhausting, you know, because you don't know if it's going to be same two weeks from now as it is now to make a plan and then they might have to change it. But what does it look like to continue to persist in that and um, to, to love the people around us? What does it look like with the school thing that's going on for you to love the people around you, the neighbors around you? For us as a church, to love the people around us? What would God have us do? And within some clarity of what God wants for us, what risks might we need to take uh, to make something happen? Are you open to God telling you to do something crazy? You know, and, and it's all crazy because you can't follow your plan for your life, which is what, apart from Christ, you're going to be doing. It's just figuring it out on your own. And in Christ, you can't do that. Um, you're either seeking your kingdom or you're seeking Uh, his kingdom and your kingdom and my kingdom honestly like our priority in our kingdom is to be as comfortable as possible 
Like on my own, in my flesh, that's what I really want. I want to be physically comfortable, emotionally comfortable, and relationally comfortable. God doesn't really care that much about your comfort or mine, you know? Like he's going to, he wants you to be content, but it's just going to look different. And so following his plan for your life is by definition going to be something that's risky. And if, if you're not risking some stuff, then you might not be where God wants you to be. Like I think, I think we have to get to like milestone places in our life and look back and think the path that God's taken me on is such a different path than I would have taken for myself that if I'm not right about this, I probably made some serious mistakes. And if you can't, then you got to ask yourself some questions about whose kingdom you're really living for. So his plan is risky. His plan is clear. His plan is the Lord's, um, is yours, is yours. Father, I pray for, um, I mean, I pray for conviction. I pray, um, I pray if there is anyone that's, that's tuned in this morning that is not reconciled to you through Christ, I trust that you have been speaking to them, Lord. And that's the only reason that they're here is because you've been speaking to them. And I trust that because I know how you spoke to me when, when I was on my way to you. I know how you spoke to me in ways that nobody else could speak to me. And you convicted me of my sin and you convicted me of the truth of Jesus. And you convicted me of my need for him. And you called me to respond. And I know from talking to a bunch of other people that you work in similar ways in our lives, Lord. And so when I say that to them, they know it because you're you. And so I pray if anyone is not reconciled to, to you through Christ and who he is and what he's done for us and what he's called us to, Lord, um, that they this morning would confess Jesus as Lord and surrender their lives to him, God. I pray that we would not, that we would not give up, that we would not slow down, that we would persist, especially in this time of disruption in our character being shaped to be more like you, God. And that you would give us specific areas, visions of, of who we could be like, who you want us to be like, where you want us to change. And that you would um, speak into us using each other about areas that we need to change in our lives. God, I pray that we would be about your business of loving, loving our neighbors and making disciples. And that that calls for a sacrifice uh, on our part that we are not comfortable with or a risk because we're not sure it's going to work out. That we would have the courage to follow you. Um, in the midst of that, Lord. We love you, God. Um, we're thankful for your word and the ways that you use it to speak to us. And um, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.